Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. And today in the ongoing interview series, we have a special guest, Peter Sainsbury from the UK. He is a person that I follow on Twitter and he has a website that I follow called Materials Risk. And he's written several books about commodities and resources. I find his writing to be very, very prescient and very uh, useful. Uh, he sends out a weekly email that you can subscribe to, and I'm sure he'll let us know at the end how you can do that. Uh, but uh, with all of the discussion around um, an interest in commodities and resources as they seem to be doing well recently, I thought it would be a good idea to have uh, Peter on and have him share his uh, uh, information. So Peter, welcome to the show. And if you wouldn't mind, can you just give us a little background or, or what you do and uh, how you got to where you are here and what, and what you're currently doing? Yeah, uh, great to be here, uh, John. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the invite. Um, yeah, no, uh, I um, I uh, I'm gonna yeah my sort of day job is a is a, an economist, um, but uh, I'm very much a, an active uh, investor in in commodity markets, and you know, have been over the last uh, you know about twenty years. Um, you know, as you mentioned, I've also written a number of books, uh, you know, particularly focused on on commodity markets and um, you know, what I've really tried to do is, you know, through my own journey through these markets is to try and, uh, you know, help other investors as well, you know, educate them about, you know, about commodity markets in particular, but really how, you know, how commodities fit in with the sort of broader sort of macroeconomic trends. All right. Awesome. Um, so we've seen, I've seen a couple of reports come out from Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley I actually did a Google search or trends on the word super cycle. This is now entering the uh, lexicon of the terminology in the investment markets. Um, I noticed that you did write an article about in general about super cycles, what defines them. So the thing that I'm concerned about, or I'm curious about what your view is, um, obviously I was around for the previous so-called super cycle, which was basically, you know, uh, over a decade ago, uh, we saw record highs in many resources and commodities specifically because of China and what was going on there, their build out. Do you have a view that, uh, we are entering another super cycle cyclical or secular, or is this more these recent runs in some of these commodities with copper making eight and nine year highs, oil now moving above $60 Brent, various other commodities, ag commodities going nuts. Is this to your mind, the beginning of a cycle or super cycle, or is this just the result of an inflationary impulse from monetary, uh, the amount of tsunami of monetary uh, infusions we've seen around the world? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, um, I think it's both of those, those things to an extent. Um, but I mean, to, to row back, I think, you know, you mentioned the previous commodity cycle, super cycle, I mean, that kind of really started in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and then, you know, ran up into, you know, oil peaking in uh, about 2008 and, uh, you know, other metals around 2011. Um, but what you tend to get through history is this, uh, you know, almost repeated cycle of, you know, 10 to 15 years up, up cycle and then a similar period of, um, you know, of weaker or lower prices um, as that kind of excess capacity is, is uh, gradually worked out of the system. Um, so, you know, applying that kind of that framework um, in terms of timing, at least, you know, we're, we're very much, you know, 
I think at the stage where we're starting to come out of that, that trough in the cycle. Um, so I think there's a number of factors that are you know, driving that. I think on the, you know, on the demand side going forward, you've got um, you know, the, the, sort of the, the, social, the social factors that are going to drive um, spending by governments going forward. So we, you know, since the financial crisis has been a, you know, a, very much a focus on financial stability, but I think going forward, it's going to be very much about social stability. You know, governments recognise they can't go back on, you know, back to an austerity environment. Uh, so it's going to be a lot more spending on, um, you know, correcting, you know, inequalities within society. You know, whether that's through, you know, MMT or or some other, um, you know, mechanism by which, you know, that money can get into the into the real economy. Um, and then there's, you know, other factors like things like the environment. So, the, you know, the past year, the, you know, the, the um, COVID crisis, you know, that's, that has focused attention on, you know, some of the sort of wider environmental problems. Um, so you're going to get, you know, a lot more, or what we've seen is a lot more investment in, uh, a, lot, a lot more focus from investors on, you know, ESG. Um, and that, you know, that's going to drive, you know, demand for copper, um, you know, nickel and other and other metals as well, as well as the kind of sort of minor metals like uh, things like cobalt as well. Um, and then you've got the, you know, the kind of the change in supply chains. Chains. So, you know, from a period of globalization to one where, you know, things are more bifurcated. You know, you've got the the US world and the China world, and um, yeah, that's naturally going to create. You know, it's going to take a while to become efficient. So over time. Uh, you know, in the short term, at least, you're going to get lots of, um, you know, bottlenecks, higher, you know, higher prices, um, and you can kind of see that with things like, um, you know, shipping shipping rates at the moment. So if you see from, if you're trying to ship something from Shanghai to Western Europe, you know, uh, people people are paying, you know, three or four times what they were about a year ago. Um, so all these kind of sort of inflationary things are starting to creep in that suggest we're, you know, at the very early innings of a super cycle. Um, but then I, you know, would add, you know, things like you, know, you mentioned uh, in terms of, um, you know, central bank uh, stimulus. You know, that's going to be a, a real uh, tailwind for, um, you know, commodity prices, particularly things like, um, you know, gold and silver, you know, going forward. Um, but then, yeah, then I think the other point to mention, and it, and it goes back to, um, you know, the commodity super cycle is on the supply side. There's just been this lack of investment, um, you know, not just not just uh, oil, um, but, you know, other, other, you know, other commodities as well. Um, and as that demand starts to increase, what we'll find is that, you know, that there won't be there won't be sufficient supply to meet that demand, which will, you know, help uh, help support prices. Yeah, I think I'm reminded uh, one of my favorite uh, mining entrepreneurs is uh, Robert Friedland. Um, he's kind of a character, um, and he was interviewed recently. Well, it was a couple of years ago at the African Mining in Daba, and uh, I think he somebody <laughs> asked him a question about copper. Obviously, he's self interested. He's developing one of the largest copper mm -hmm. mines in the DRC, but he said that. Uh, they asked him where he thought the copper price was going to go. And he said, well, you're going to need a telescope to see how high it goes. But uh, I mean, 
that kind of makes the point though, doesn't it? Because I think one of the mistakes I made when I, I'm attracted to the resource and commodity markets, I have been just since I was a little kid digging in the dirt, something about it just appealed to me. So I've always been a, uh, had an affinity for it. But uh, now that I'm older, and I've lost a lot of money uh, earlier in my career, because one of the things I didn't understand about resources, and you mentioned, you touched on a bit uh, during your opening remarks, is the cyclicality that's inherent in commodities and resources markets or any type of resource. These things, uh, Doug Casey, another guy that I like listening to, he used the uh, term that, you know, when you're investing in these markets, specifically the companies that are involved in mining, uh, which is a method to take advantage of, these things are what he calls burning matches. I mean, these are not like, you don't buy these and hold them for like widows and orphans because the inherent cyclicality. And I think having an understanding of the cyclicality and what drives cyclicality you have to understand that uh, because um, just because I think of uh, some of the um, investment timelines and, 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 and really mining's a sh- really crappy business. It's not a really good high margin business, except for these short periods of time, like we seem to be entering now when um, uh, prices go up because of the previous lack of investment. So if you could touch on that, the cyclicality or any kind of work you've done on that or, or, or how you look at that uh, or how you, what, yeah. what your view is on that. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Cause I mean, you know, if you look at the long, literally the long run price of commodities, you know, over you know, 50, hundred years, um, you know, oil slightly different in that, you know, that, that, you know, because of the nature of the market that that has increased in price over time but most other other commodities have actually you know, stayed pretty much the same over, over a long period of time in, in real terms um so that, you know you're right they're not a you know buy and hold forever investment um so the key is to be able to you know understand where you are in the cycle at all times um you know trying to get you know near the bottom of the cycle um but then it, yeah, it very much depends on your um, being clear on your time frame. So you know, I mentioned you know the commodity super cycle. So you know, if you if looking back, you could have bought back in two thousand and um, you know sold out two thousand seven, two thousand eight. You know that was a you know a great you know buy and hold strategy over that over that those several years. But even within that period, there was periods where um you know those markets moved in in cycles um you know and kind of looking back there's you tend to get this uh, four or five year cycle um within these larger super cycles um you know and part of that's related to things like um you know just the business the business cycle um but yeah you know other 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 you know factors are you know relate to you know the weather you know, uh, crop cycles and things like that. So there's, I think for, for any investor, it's being clear about, you know, what, what time frame they're, they're investing on in, um, you know, being clear where they are in the cycle and then, you know, understanding, you know, if it's a short-term play they're making is, you know, recognize when the, that short-term cycle is starting to turn. Um, yeah. So I think, 
would you, I mean, I read another article and you kind of pointed out, uh, which I thought was important too on your uh, site. Uh, like there's a difference in the cyclicality or timing or the length, I should say, of a cycle, mm. as you would talk about maybe like copper or something like that vis-a-vis like agricultural commodities, like agricultural commodities because of the crop cycles yearly. Um, now you could have, I think, in, in, inside of that, which is something I, I kind of, I've been talking about and I want to get your view on that also, but, um, you know, you could have, uh, example I would think is like, the Chinese now they had some poor uh, crop crops mm-hmm. and because of the rains they had there really weren't publicized uh, decimation of their hog population they're rebuilding so they have this tremendous amount of uh, import of soybean meal and corn and stuff like that that can affect something but then also you know we've had tremendous in my view uh, well the facts are great growing conditions for like the last five or six years we've had great carryovers and so I think if you really want to be involved in this, I guess, you know, you really got to, it's not something you just, you know, do it on a fly and just fly, fly or just say, I'm going to buy this. I mean, understanding each individual market, they do have their intricacies and in like in agricultural markets. Um, you mm-hmm. noted that uh, they, you know, you could have a smaller cycle instead of a larger cycle, just based on weather or, or some kind of one-off yeah. demand. Yeah, that's right. And I think another thing people, um, you know, misunderstand or, or don't appreciate is that, you know, the interaction between different commodities. So, you know, energy, you know, oil in particular is a big driver of, um, you know, of, 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 other, of other commodities. Um, and in turn, they also, you know, drive some of the margins that, you know, miners and other, you know, commodity producers can make as well. Um, so, you know, you can't just focus on one in isolation. You have to kind of, you know, see how that puzzle evolves over time and you know being able to anticipate the you know how those different cycles move um you wrote a book uh like i said i haven't read them but i just did want to ask uh a couple questions based on the titles and the synopsis synopsis that i read commodities 50 things you really need to know obviously we don't we're not going to give up all the (laughs) good stuff here but you know what are some of the issues or ideas or, or or facts that people misunderstand about the, the commodity markets? Like, what what are some of the major themes that they really need to know uh, going into this? Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, one that was kind of like uh, kind of was you know, perhaps dear to me, but yeah, kind of hit me hit me in the wallet was the um, the, the importance of geopolitics. So I, I did um, an interview. Maybe about a year ago now, where it was, I, I kind of described my my worst investment, and it was a you know um, you know a, a gold miner based in um, you know in Asia, you know in a particular country, which was you know a very low cost producer, and I was looking at it as, as being a uh, a good um, you know a low cost bet on the gold price, you know, and if, if it went the wrong way, you know it wouldn't be too bad. But what I didn't really count on, or didn't really, you know, to be honest, I didn't had hadn't put enough research into the specific factors in that country. Um, you know, I got stung by, you know, the the change in the, you know, the policy in that in that particular country. Um, so, you know, it's things like that. You know, geopolitics is a very important factor. You know, not just globally, but you know, clearly at, at an individual commodity level as well. Um, and then, um, you know, I think 
although it's not something that you 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 can always time it's you know being aware of what the the positioning is in the in the crude in the commodity futures markets are and 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 the dollar especially um so if you look at the you know the actions of um you know in particular hedge, hedge funds you can you can see at certain periods of time whether they are kind of net long or net short you know if that if that positions at an extreme level um you know sometimes even if the, the fundamentals look promising say for you know in terms of prices going up you know if that positioning is 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 to the extreme then it's a sign that perhaps you should be a little bit cautious about um you know entering the market at that particular time um so it's yeah you know, it's, it's factors like that which you know short-term traders would be more aware of but you know longer-term investors you know can it can certainly help them with their their positioning um and then i, I guess you know, another thing is just about um uh, and i, I think this, this touches on the my second book actually is is to be aware of the um you know what's actually put out in the public domain by you know investment banks you know at the very start you, you mentioned about you know the commodity super cycle becoming you know uh, a more common title in on you know from bloomberg to you know whatever else um and sometimes you've got to be careful that you know the the investment pieces and research that are, and you know forecasts that are put out in the public domain you know sometimes that is you know they're, they're trying to sell um you know investment into the companies that they're trying to fund not necessarily for in the best interests of, of you as a, as a commodity investor yeah i mean i'm not shy and giving my opinion i mean <laughs> these people uh always are talking their book that's how i approach mm. anything that they say so uh, but however, as we both know, that doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong. I mean, that's really a, a thing we could touch on also is sediment. Um, uh, one of the things I like to use is sediment indicators, and that's really important to me is because that's why I try, try to use um, public sediment and the media, what I see in the media being put out there, or what people are putting out investment banks. Um, obviously, that makes sense, you know, and because we're in such a highly liquid liquid as far as there's so much money has been created and so much uh they've turned central banks have basically turned everyone into a speculator now as opposed to an investor uh class and rampant speculation so i mean i noticed on one of your articles and it's a theme that i picked up on this is why i like i think a lot of your thoughts are pretty good when i read your you know you showed a cover of barons recently and uh you know i'm a big proponent of the magazine indicator i like to look what you know, the economist is famous, is famous for mm. <laughs> picking tops and bottoms with their covers. Yeah. So uh, I remember uh, one of the best investments I ever made was in a company in Kazakhstan, it was an oil company, and it was based on their article. They had a cover, I think it was in 97 or 98, the end of oil, whenever oil was like $10 a barrel or something, it was the end of oil, you know, okay. Yeah. And of course, we went on this tremendous run, like you ended up at $150 a barrel eight years later. But anyways, what... I mean, you talked a little bit about sentiment, but, uh, you know, what, what other tools do you, do you use to, you know, I know commitment of traders, you mentioned, uh, watching that, but other sentiment indicators, because like we just said, yeah, they could be talking their book, but how, how 
uh, what's the right term? How much of a, how many people are, how much money's really in the commodity market? Seems like we, like you said, we were on the early innings, but what would be some sediment indicators you'd be looking for to say, Hey, this is time for, cause you're never going to catch the exact high. So how do you, how do you, how do you start looking at like, okay, this is getting where to an area where it's near the top or near the end. Yeah, I think, I think, um, yeah. So I think, yeah, things like magazine covers tend to be, you know, kind of sort of lagging indicators because you know, just because of the time it takes, mm-hmm. you know, I think you mentioned the economist, they, um, you know, they, they prepare and write these articles, you know, weeks or months in advance. So they're, they're having to, you know, judge a cycle, um, you know, a trend and, you know, and then even if it's turned by the time, you know, they publish, they, they still go ahead and publish it. Um, but, you know, you can, you can see things in the, in the sort of general media, um, you know, if, you know, there's articles like, um, you know, reports of so-and-so, you know, making a killing on a certain market, um, you know, and I think what worries me at the moment in, in from markets in, in general is you've got, there's so much uh, focused on, you know, re- retail participation in the markets. You know, you mentioned about, you know, markets being, you know, turned into a, you know, just a speculation, you know, a casino of, of, in, a, in a way. Um, but you tend to get that real run up in speculative activity, you know, at the peak of the market in, you know, from financial markets in general, not necessarily, you know, commodities um, <clears throat> at the moment, excuse me. Um, so, you know, it's things like that, that, that I see, uh, I look for at the top of the market. Um, and then, you know, just to touch on, you know, things at the bottom of the market. <clears throat> yeah, it's when, you know, if, if, a, <clears throat> if, a, um, if a market is completely hated, you know, and, um, and people just, you know, won't want to touch it with a, a barge pole, you know, they just, you know, it's uninvestable. Um, and I think, I think uh, for many investors, certainly, you know, institutional investors, yeah, that's where oil is at the moment. You know, may, maybe some other uh, fossil fuels as well, because um, we've seen, um, you know, the pressure from, you know, uh, ESG funds to, you know, divest from you know, any association with with fossil fuels, and um, I think that that's created an opportunity for for investors who are able and willing to to look uh, look at it as a as a favourable bet. Um, you know, what you tend to get is, you know, the, the market will always clear, you know, even if, you know, there is the demand from the institutions have gone out, you know, that means others that can, that can take a position can look, look in that market. Um, so, you know, thinking about, you know, oil companies in particular, especially ones that are actually still oil companies, not the ones that have, you know, recently uh, tried to diversify to... <laughs> To uh, yeah, renewables. Um, you know, you get you, you start to see the the yield the yields go up. Uh, you know, to try and attract try attract investors, um, and that starts to look like a quite an interesting, you know, kind of asymmetric uh, proposition. I thought it was interesting that you said that because I mean that's exactly right. And I think one of the things uh, that people that want to, I mean, the as I mentioned, these are typically not that good of businesses over the average, if you average them out for 20 years, but then you get into these time frames like we're in now, 
uh, where some factors come together uh, cyclically and politically and some of these other things. And I am really excited because, you know, we had a change in administration here. The first thing that the administration did was ban fracking on federal land, banned any new leases. And does that single event mean it's going to uh, create higher oil price? No, but you start combining these, piling the straw on top of the camel, uh, this here, a little bit there, and, you know, this, I mean, I almost view it as being suicidal. I don't know what's gotten into people's heads. Um, I, energy underpins everything that we do. It allows for the civilization we enjoy. Do I believe we should be good stewards of the environment? Yes. But just to say that we're going to get off, I don't understand, Peter, what does zero carbon mean? I don't know what that means. I mean, I, I am in the renewable, I call them rebuildables. Somebody else coined them that, uh, renewables markets, actually the rebuildables because entropy means that, uh, the panels and windmills have to be replaced. Mm. They wear out, uh, their machines. So, uh, um, I don't understand. I mean, you're an economist, so that means you have an analytical mind, you make models. You know, I think that we'll have an energy transition, but I can't find an energy transition throughout mankind's history for the last 10,000 years of civilization where they went from a, from a dense form of energy to a less dense energy form in an energy transition. I mean, we moved from uh, roving bands of hunter gatherers burning animal dung in wood then into burning, you know, wood, then to coal, then to petroleum age, then the nuclear age. And the thing that I find common, common in those is that the energy sources got more and more dense. You had more energy in a smaller, and now we're talking about, I mean, I know you, you've probably been to the Netherlands. I mean, you could still go to see windmills from the, you know, 14th and 15th century. They're museums now. They don't actually use them to grind mm -hmm. grain or pump water for their canals because, the steam engine was invented by James Watt. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, this is, uh, and then if you look at the third world, developing world, emerging world, you've got to, you know, however you want to characterize it, a billion people, maybe more that have never flipped a light switch. Their first light switch is not, or the first light in their house is not going to be powered more than likely by a windmill. It's probably going to be a coal or natural mm -hmm. gas fired power plant. So, and, uh, I start looking at the numbers and put these things into spreadsheets. I believe there will be an energy transition. There's going to be this effort to decarbonize in the West, but I look at that's 800 million people in the West. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at the other 7 billion people and I'm not, I, I've seen a lot of lip service being paid by China and India and these places that if anybody's actually been to India, I mean, it's not, they have a lot of problems there and, and, and it's going to be very energy intensive to fix those problems. So I think some of these things are tremendous tailwinds that people really need to realize. And mm -hmm. let me ask you this. I mean, I don't want you to delve into the political. I don't want you to, you know, say whatever you want, but um, is it really possible to transition? I mean, I mean, there'll be a transition, but it's not going to be in the next two or three years because it's any energy that I've seen has taken decades. I mean, and I think that the tailwind, uh, you know, minister, ministers like in India have said, you know, hey, we're going to use the resource. We, we have a right to develop also and, and, and you know, not just to constrain our population. So any any views on that or, or, or ideas? I don't want to drag you into a political conversation, but it's just it, it has to be talked about because it, it, it matters. You know, Royal Dutch Shell, Total, 
Equinor, they're all going to build renewables. Well, that's not their core competency. Their core competency is oil and gas exploration. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, any comments? Yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean, there's three or four things there, I think. I mean, I mean you mentioned about you know, energy transitions, and there's a, I think, the book by, I think, Vitklav. Yeah, Vaclav Smil. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And he describes, you know, energy transitions over time. And, you know, it's always been to, um, you know, it's always been a kind of market orientated transition. It's never been a, a kind of government mandated transition. It's always been to something that's more, um, you know, more efficient, more, um, you know, better for, you know, for the consumer of that, whether it's transportation or, or, or whatever other application. And so I do think, yeah, that we're in a, a very different transition here where it's going to be, you know, government mandated, it's going to be policy that's going to direct that transition. So, you know, as investors, yes, it, it might pay to, you know, pay attention to what people, you know, what governments are saying, um, you know, despite, you know, we might not necessarily agree with what, what they're saying. Um, and then, yeah, you touched on, on India. Um, yeah, and I, I think they, and this kind of segues back to the, you know, the kind of commodity super cycle proposition in that, um, yeah, they've got potential to be a very big driver of not just energy demand, but commodity demand over the next 10, 20 years. Um, you might have seen the, the protests over the last couple of weeks from you know, farmers of various parts of the country. Um, you know, and, they're, and they're protesting against um, you know, what they might see as you know, kind of more market-based reforms of the agricultural system. But it's, it's really kind of almost like a, a sort of growing pain in the, in the country in that they are transitioning very slowly from an agricultural society to a you know, much more one focused on um, uh, you know, services, manufacturing and you know, essentially you know, urbanize, urbanizing the country. Um, so that's going to be a massive tailwind for energy and um, you know, commodity demand. If you think of how they're going to build up that grid of you know, power and um, you know, telecommunications and everything else. And then, you know, just in terms of their, their energy use, you know, it's not just India, it's, it's, it's you know, other countries in Southeast Asia as well and, and you know, places like Africa as well. But, um, yeah, they've, um, you know, they're in, in, as they've developed, they've focused on coal as their, you know, energy source. You know, and, that, and that's kind of, that makes a lot of sense. And from their country's perspective, and that they might have those resources, you know, domestically. Um, you know, coal's a, a commodity that can be sort of stored and moved about relatively easily. Um, but you know, that in the transition in the West, you know, we're clearly trying to move away from coal, or we have moved away from coal very fast and towards gas and then renewables. But many of these countries like India and others, you know, they might only be, you know, 10, 20 years, you know, kind of halfway through the life cycle of a, of a, of a coal and generation plant. Um, so it's going to, you know, if they were going to change over to, you know, gas or some other, you know, renewable, it's going to cost them, you know, so much more money than what we, we, we're going to experience in, you know, in Europe and uh, North America. So I don't think we necessarily appreciate that, and we you know, we just see it from our you know our own domestic perspective. 
and then yeah, you know, your final point about you know, you know certain companies, um, you know, through you know pressure from shareholders have, have moved towards um, you know renewables, um, but I, I you know as you say some of them aren't necessarily that that experienced in that in that area, and I think what they've their their share prices have suffered because because they're so late in the game, they've had to pay top dollar to to be able to develop those assets, whereas other, you know, more renewable focused co- companies that have been in this game for 10, 20 years, they've, um, they've, uh, you know, they've, uh, you know, they, they, they're ahead of these you know, big um, multinational oil companies. Yes, indeed. Um, and I didn't want to, uh, you know, I'm not trying to get you to, you know, take a position. I have the position I was looking at this because you're exactly right. It doesn't really matter what I think, you know, makes sense because uh, I'm not king of the world. It's uh, there's a political agenda. It's going to be carried out. Uh, these are democratic societies, so that means for the most part the people are on board with this. Uh, and so I kind of approach it from the perspective of calling it. I've been calling it recently. Uh, heads I win, tails I win more, because just to your point with the sunk costs, like you mentioned with a coal plant that can last for 30 or 40 years, you're not going to demo the thing. If you just built it uh, to put up uh, windmills, it's not going to happen. And, but then again, I also realized that, uh, you know, a lot of these schemes, maybe in my mind, having been in this business, maybe don't make market sense relative to other competing energy sources, but the decision has been taken at a political level that that's going to happen anyway. So there's no sense swimming upstream uh, or trying to sail into the wind, uh, turn the ship around and catch the tailwind. So, you know, that's why I'm a big advocate now of like, okay, um, electric vehicles, uh, it's not just Tesla. I mean, Volkswagen's committed $40 billion, all the major manufacturers go down the list. So what does that mean? I need Nick. I mean, that's, that's why I like listening to people like Robert Friedland, the guy's an entrepreneur. And if you listen to him, I listened to a recent interview that he had with Simon Moores or somebody, the guy that does battery metals. I mean, I don't really think he has a position. If you really pinned him down, if, like waterboarded him, well, maybe he does believe it. Maybe he has a position. Everybody has their own, polit- but he's mines commodities. That's what the guy does. So uh, it's like, okay, well, if you're going to have tens of millions of electric vehicles and you need nickel, lithium, cobalt, and some of these things, you know, that's the tails, you know, heads I win, tails I win more because the petroleum age is going to go into a sunset, but it's not going to be in the next year or two. And I think with a psych cyclicality that represents in the underinvestment, that's what creates your opportunity. And can, you know, it doesn't really matter what happens as long as you understand what's really happening, you can take advantage of that profit. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, you know, climate concerns, you know, ESG investing has, you know, created a, you know, an opportunity in that, you know, it's, it's reduced that investment into, um, you know, conventional, you know, oil and other other sources, um, but yeah, at the same time, it's you know increased demand for you know things like copper and nickel and other other metals. Um, uh, I, you know, I think another thing I sort of touch on that I think Robert Friedland has discussed re- recently was about um, uh, you know trying to find a way of differentiating between. Um, you know, the source of, you know, particular commodities so that you might have like a, you know, different variations of, 
you know brown or green or no, really what other color for different 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 metals you know based on where they've been mined and how they've been mined and you know and then that could be then factored into some kind of um you know premium or discount so there's you know i mean there's there's potential for it to um you know even the whole sort of pricing mechanism for metals to evolve over, over time I'm glad that you mentioned that because I'm actually looking at a company that he is a angel investor in. It's called Abix Technologies. Um, it's, I believe they're based in Singapore. They're getting ready to roll out their first product, which is an LNG product. Uh, I don't know the, I've been just looked at it recently, but that's exactly what they were intending on doing is uh, having this, you know, with the LNG market being so bifurcated because of the transportation, I mean, you could have $20, uh, MMBTU in, in Japan, but, you know, $2.75 in Texas. And this, you know, they're creating this new exchange is going to have different mm -hmm. contracts for just to your point, uh, for something's more ESG compliant versus, you know, some warlord in Liberia mining uh, something, there's going to be that differentiation, then people can, you know, obviously, market based, uh, you know, deal with that. Uh, because there is a big uh, uh, push for that. So that's, that's interesting, and especially with blockchain technology, I think is involved in this too. So yes, uh, that's uh, very, uh, very important. I mean, um, I guess, uh, um, what, uh, one of the things uh, that I wanted to uh, also talk about was, um, how do you, I mean, how do you express your uh investments or themes i mean do you deal do you do futures contracts options do you just buy uh shares and companies that uh, are mining or producing these commodities i mean how do you express your uh your uh investment uh, uh ideas via actual investments yeah yeah i mean ma mainly through um investment in you know commodity producers um certainly on a, on a sort of longer term you know I talked about those those cycles Yep. Yeah, you know, so it could be you know a couple of years or or several years in case of you know a long term cycle, and um, but then you know for very short term positions, you know, it tends to be um, you know either you know an individual commodity futures market or um, you know or or an ETF, an ETF um, okay. for example. Okay. All right. Uh, do you want to, I mean, we're getting to the end of our time. I just, uh, wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about uh, some of the work you do. And I mean, I don't think you have enough people following you. I mean, I've told people, uh, I mean, they need to subscribe. They need, I mean, you put all your information out for free. It's not like you have a paid service or anything, but you do have a couple books you've put out, which I intend on reading and uh, also your website. And I believe you're on Twitter also, but uh, I encourage people, I think you have a mailing list you can get onto and you, you come out with a, occasional emails then you have this other thing you come out with it kind of i like it because uh it has like uh well you can describe it a bunch of different articles or reports that you uh aggregate and put out if you can talk about some of the some of your work and how people can follow you that'd be great yeah uh, the best place for people to find me on on twitter is well it is on twitter is um you know at peter sainsbury seven and and there you'll see a link to my, my website, which is uh, materials-risk.com. And um, yeah, I, as you say, I, I tend to post um, you know an article, you know, maybe a couple of times a, a week. And um, you know, every fortnight, I do a uh, kind of like a sort of research roundup. That um, so it's, you know, kind of the best 
research I found you know, freely available on the internet, you know, whether it's macroeconomics or commodities or you know whatever else. And um, you know, then also links to some of the sort of best books or you know podcasts that um, that I've listened to over over that time. Um, and um, yeah, so you'll you'll see the links to you know my my books on the website. Um, yeah, a couple about uh, commodities, one about um, kind of understanding sort of media narratives more uh, uh, in better detail and you know, how that can be used for, for investment. Uh, and then the final one, uh, you know, about uh, betting on Formula One. So a very different uh, different book. Yeah, we talked offline about that. I was, uh, I got to get that just to read it now because it's uh, <laughs> so far away from the, but I guess it does uh, kind of tie back because we talked offline about that. So uh, that's interesting. Uh, I'm going to uh, read that also. That seemed uh I just have to because it seems so off the wall. Now I got to <laughs> read it, so it's a uh, good. Well, Peter, uh, um, definitely appreciate your time today. And uh, like I said, I wanted to introduce my um, readership and viewership to your work because I think it's outstanding. I don't want to embarrass you or anything, but it's really—I mean, just about every article I've read of yours or every email I've gotten has been useful to me. I mean, in further down research, your recent one about India, for example, was outstanding—a theme that I was already. Uh, uh, on. And uh, so I look forward to uh, seeing more of your work. And I encourage uh, everybody that's watching this to sign up for your um, uh, emails and uh, get, on, get on that email list. So definitely appreciate your time today. And uh, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks, Joe. All right.